It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about one of the, if not the worst tragedies in the history of Murray County, Tennessee. On Sunday, June 26, 1977, visiting day at the Murray County Jail at about 1.55 that afternoon, the local fire department got a call that a fire had broken out at the Murray County Jail. Heavy smoke was seen billowing out of the building, and it was reported that people were trapped inside, unable to get out. By day's end, 42 people lost their lives. It is the worst jail fire in uh, Tennessee's history, the second worst jail fire. I'm sorry, it's the uh, worst jail fire tragedy in Tennessee, the second worst jail fire in American history. Along with a regular co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, I have with me in the studio Cindy Tinsley, author of the 2018 self-published book, Tragedy in, in Small Town, Tennessee, the Murray County Jail Fire, and Mr. Fred Rich, who, on the day of the jail fire, was an EMS technician who responded to the call. I'd like to thank you all for coming, and welcome to History's Hook. Before we get into the details of that day, Cindy, what prompted you to want to write about this story? Well, it's rather interesting, Tom, because I had written a book about the history of the Columbia Breakfast Rotary Club, and the president of the club at the time, Missy Metter, asked me to autograph a copy of that book and bring it to the archives and donate it. Well, I had never been inside the archives, which was, of course, previously the location of the jail and where the fire occurred. And I'm telling you, when I walked through those doors, my arms were tingling, I, I, I could not stop thinking about that fire. And I went home, and after about an hour, I told my husband, I've got to write a book about the jail fire. And he asked me, well, do you know anything about it? And I said, well, no, I'm going to have to figure it out. And that's when I came back to the archives building and pulled out all the information that was there on site and started digging and studying and Learnings. So when you came to the archives, you f- felt it. So, so this was a memory for you. You were, you were in Columbia in 1977 when the fire happened. Yes, I was. I was a teenager. I, I've always had the ability to feel emotions. When I walk into a room, I, I can just pick up emotions. And I think that's why when I walked into the archives building, there's just, in my mind, trapped emotions there. And I I could feel them. And I still, every time I say those words, I get those same tingling sensations. I think it it was such a tragedy. And 95 people were actually inside that facility when that young man from Wisconsin set a fire inside the padded cell. And what's amazing to me is that over half were able to escape and survive. Right. 
could have been a much worse tragedy. Oh, absolutely. We'll get into the detail in, in just a second. So. I find it interesting uh, how you opened up. The 1977 jail fire, although it was a local tragedy, seemed to affect people in the same manner as the big national tragedies do on a bigger scale. The Kennedy assassination, 9-11, people who lived through those times remember where they were, usually in great detail, right? For local people, I have found, since you wrote this book and people come to the archives, what was then the jail, so I work there every day, uh, they come in and want to see what it looks like now and they remember what the jail was like, but they can tell me with great detail where they were on the day the jail fire happened. So why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that event, more than any other, is the thing that people remember? Because it impacted so many. And if you think about the fact that there were 95 people inside the building, every one of those people was a son, a daughter, a mother, a grandmother, a father, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a friend, to someone in this, at that time, relatively small community. So everyone, and then if you expand that to the firefighters, the police officers, the EMS workers, the funeral directors, this impacted everyone. And it was not a positive impact. It it was like someone came up and just gutted us. I mean, we were all mourning over this, even if you didn't know people intimately who perished, the impact was just so broad spread. Right. I still now, if I'm downtown on the top of the hour and I hear the chimes of the, the tower, I revert back really? to that time. Yes. Still, after all yes, of these years. After all these years. So let's set the stage a little bit. It's a quiet Sunday, it's in the middle of summer, it's 90 degrees outside. It's visiting day. So not only were the jail staff present and those who were incarcerated, but people were coming to visit their loved ones in the jail. So how many people were incarcerated that day? And do we know the breakdown? How many men? How many women? I don't have that information right at my fingertips. It, It seems like there were possibly six or seven females incarcerated. Okay. Okay, so about about fifty three people, I think, is um, what what the yes, what I the think reports that, say. I think that's correct. Right. Uh, so, how big is the jail? It, it can hold not too many more than that, I would think. No, I, I think they were pretty close to capacity. Uh, how many visitors? About there were. Well, there were ninety five people inside the facility, okay. including and jail roughly, staff, and including the jail staff. So there were thirty eight. 38 visitors. Okay. That day. From your book. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> how, does, how does the fire begin? The fire begins with a visitor handing a cigarette in through the what they call the, the bean hole, which is the food tray that would be in that metal door at the padded cell. Okay. So this 16-year-old is inside the padded cell, and he yells out asking for a cigarette. And that cigarette was given to him. We don't know if a match was given with it or if it was passed through lit or if he was given a lit cigarette to light it off of. But somehow that young man was able to use that cigarette to light the padding inside that cell, which was supposed to have been fireproof padding. 
Right. So this is just a teenage boy inside of this padded room. Right. There's a steel door with a slit in it to pass food through. Somebody passes him a cigarette because he asked for it. This is right. 1977. That's right. probably not an unreasonable well, thing to ask in 1977. That's what smokers do. Even today, if you ask somebody for a cigarette and they're a smoker, they oh, you get a cigarette. And although the padding is supposed to be fire retardant or yes. fireproof, yes. he somehow manages to do it. I, I know in the report, they were surprised that he was able to do it, that they had tested this material again and again for this very reason. And they think maybe that he had slit the outside part of, mm-hmm. of the padding and was able to light the material on the inside. And what happens next? There's some supposition that he might have had a, a candy wrapper as well and lit the candy wrapper and then st- stuffed that into the padding. But we don't really know. But he did succeed in lighting the fire. And the next thing we know, a visitor notices some smoke and then one of the jail trustees notices smoke. Well, he heads up to the front where the officers were. And at that same time, this kid starts yelling, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. Well, that's when everyone started rushing. The um, Mr. Cummins grabbed the keys from the dispatch office. He and Deputy Duke, who was there visiting, uh, Chief Deputy Farmer and Jerry Dickey all rushed to the padded cell. The door was unlocked, and Deb Farmer, who was a very strong individual, a former um, baseball player, had to actually put his foot on the wall to get enough force to pull that door open because of the suction inside. When he did that, basically a firebomb shot out of that room and an explosion of smoke. They were able, Farmer and Duke were able to grab that young boy and they drug him out onto the, I guess that would be the east side door of the facility. At that same time, Jerry Dickey grabbed the keys from Mr. Cummins because Mr. Cummins was a military vet and he had one lame leg. So Jerry knew that Mr. Cummins was not going to be able to get around and get those doors open. But at the same time that he grabbed the keys, when that smoke exploded out into the seven-foot-wide corridor where all the visitors were standing, his military training told him, drop to the ground. Uh, The term he, he actually shared with me was he was trying to kiss the concrete when you're dealing with fire and smoke. So that's what he did. But at the same time, you can imagine these 39 visitors are all trying to rush in a panic and get out as anyone would be. Someone kicked the keys accidentally from his hand. So the keys for a time were lost. But that wasn't the biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle was the dense, dark, black smoke. Because the firefighters who had gotten the call arrived in 90 seconds. They were one block away. So when the firefighters arrived, they had to go in on their hands and knees. And even with their strong flashlights, professional firefighter gear, Don Martin, who was one of the first ones in the door, told me it was like holding a lit cigarette in front of your face. You couldn't see anything. It was just, he said he's never before seen smoke that dark and dense and never after, even with all his years in the fire department, did he experience anything like that. Okay. So the boy lights the padding on fire. 
They try to get him out. As soon as they open the door, there's a huge blast of fire and smoke. The fire goes out pretty quickly, right? So the, the danger dissipates. at that point is not so much the fire, but the smoke immediately fills fills this uh, this space up. Uh, we're going to stop right here, and we're going to take a, a short break. We'll be back in three minutes and thirty seconds on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. When you think of diamonds, what do you think of? Rare, precious, timeless, sparkles like the sun. They are timeless and nothing like them on earth. Then do you think, where do I buy local to buy the perfect ring? Maybe a diamond pendant or earrings or maybe a new diamond band. Look no further. Tillis Jewelry carries all your diamond and jewelry needs. Stop by and see our wonderful collection. And remember, if you don't know your diamonds, know your jeweler. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. This is Bob Kessling with Pat Ryan. It's a beautiful day for digging. The backhoe operator has the engine running and is moving into position. He's heading for the ground. He's in there. Wait, there's a flag on the play. Let's get out of the field for the call from our official. Illegal procedure on the digging team. Oh, that penalty could cause a costly accident. That's right, Bob. He needs to call before he digs. There's underground utility lines that could be hiding just below the surface. Water, sewer, electrical, communication lines, and even natural gas. Avoid a penalty by first calling 811 to have any underground public utility lines located and marked with flags or paint. It's free, it's easy, and it's the law. 
For more tips, visit pipesafety.org. This message brought to you by the Tennessee Association of Broadcasters and the Tennessee Gas Association, funded in part by a grant from the Underground Utility Damage Enforcement Board. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. If you're just joining us today, we're talking about the Murray County Jail Fire of 1977. I have in the studio with me C.R. Tinsley, who is the author of the book Tragedy in Small Town Tennessee, the Murray County Jail Fire, and Mr. Fred Rich, who is an EMT technician on that day, uh, along with our regular co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe. To recap just a little bit, the fire began in the padded cell in the Murray County Jail, which is now the Murray County Archives, when a 16-year-old boy lit the padding on fire. Uh, the police staff ran to his rescue. When they opened the door, a huge ball of fire and smoke uh, immediately went through the building. The fire was out rather rapidly, but the smoke was billowing through the building. James Duke was standing outside behind the jail visiting his brother, Deputy William Duke, when he heard a loud, what he described as a woofing sound. When he looked up, he saw a large plume of black smoke coming out of the building. He said he saw people screaming and running out of the building. Some were passing out. He ran to the door, was immediately overtaken by the smoke. He laid down on the ground and held the door open with his foot in an attempt to help people as they were searching for the exit. Mr. Rich, you were a young EMT technician in 1977. How long had you been on the job at this point in your career? At that time, probably already 10 or 15 years plus prior to that, while I was a Columbia firefighter, I also worked for Williams Funeral Homes. I'd been in ambulance work quite a a while at that time. Sure. How did you hear about the fire? You were on duty that day? Yes, that was my shift on duty. And it was, Sundays were very good days because uh, the hospital wasn't discharging a lot of patients and there wasn't any doctor's office calls and that type of thing. So we had a, normally had a very quiet Sunday. So I had actually decided to take a little nap on the couch in our lounge and uh miss webb who miss johnny webb who was the police dispatcher gave a call to uh, sergeant param maurice param who was working that zone and i didn't quite understand what she said so i picked my phone up right quick and dialed her this is all before 911 this is when they, the calls actually came into the police department or to the ambulance service and I said, Miss Webb, did you say there's a fire or a fight at the jail? And she said, Freddie, it's a fire and it's a bad one. So we immediately dispatched uh, the, the two units we had manned there at the EMS to the scene. So you immediately got to the jail. What was the scene when you arrived? Smoke that I'd never seen even in my fire department days coming out of the Sale area where Zimmer was. It was uh, a little parking lot between the uh, uh, jail door and uh, Dr. George, a veterinarian, had an office next to it, and it was a pretty good sized parking lot there. Smoke was coming out of that window, and it was, uh, I think I described that to uh, Cindy, is not only was it black, but I could actually see like green and yellow wisp, and it, it was something like I say I never had seen before. And Zimmer, Andrew Zimmer, one of the deputies had Andrew in that parking lot with a, I believe he had a shotgun to his head at the time when I got there. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that. Just uh, three days before, I think, uh, there had been a jail escape. 
a couple of people had been success, successful in, in getting out of the jail. So there was sort of a, a higher alert going on that day, which would sort of feed into some of the some of the conspiracy theories that we'll talk about in a few few minutes. But uh, so they they get this young man who is in the padded cell out. Uh, and again, the fire is basically out, but the smoke is a problem. Now, your description of the fire is the common one when you read all of the reports. It was thick. It was black, kind of greasy. It, it stuck to you. It burned when you inhaled it. And there were other colors in it as well. I think the report uh, that was done, the official report that came later, described uh, several hundred different kinds of noxious gases that were produced uh, as a result of this fire, uh, one of them being cyanide. Uh, gas, which would be found in lethal levels in some of the victims that day. Uh, so, so this is an incredibly dangerous situation. Um, the firemen entered the building in search of the keys, uh, hoping, hoping to be able to try to get some people out. They're having to crawl on their hands and knees as low to the ground as they can possibly get. Uh, others were sent on the roof uh, to uh, cut ventilation uh, and put water uh, into the padded cell. But again, the fire wasn't the problem. You wrote in your book that the jail was not equipped with emergency backup lighting systems or sprinkler systems or automatic locks. Were those safety measures standard in other larger facilities, or is this, this 1977 predate some of those features? It does. It does predate it. As a matter of fact, the fire codes for penal facilities at the time were one and a half pages. Post this particular fire... The fire codes now are 17 and a half pages. So there are many, many more stringent requirements than there were in that day. As a matter of fact, no one had any clue that that jail could even burn because it's concrete. It's concrete floors. It's it's block walls. There was nothing really that anyone could imagine burning. The only thing that could burn were mattresses. And, of course, that padded cell was nothing but mattresses, walls, ceiling. I mean, it, it's all mattress material, and we did not know at that time how toxic it was. Just within uh, a couple of months of this tragedy, they had done an inspection of the building, and I think it ranked 18, uh, according to your book, 18 out of 102 uh, jail facilities in the state for safety. Correct. So it was meeting all the necessary requirements of the time, uh, which which I find find interesting. So and and right, it's a steel and concrete building. There are very few things that can burn. But again, in this scenario, it wasn't the fire; it was the smoke uh, that was that was so deadly that day. We assume that it was uh, confused, to say the least, inside of the building. Do we know what's happening inside? How, people are fleeing if they can. What are what are other people doing? How are how are firemen able to help people that are there? What are, what are they doing inside of that building? The, the challenge inside the building was that the darkness was just so overwhelming. Even people who were relatively close to the door did not necessarily go the correct direction. It, it, if you've ever been in total darkness. The confusion that can result in that is just uh, amazing. As a matter of fact, William Duke, who knew that building very well, was a deputy there. He had crawled back inside. He had taken a deep breath and crawled back inside to try to find those keys. And when he got to the point that he was going to have to breathe in more air, he turned and he stood up and he had no clue which direction to go. 
He could not see. He could not orient himself. He said he started, he held his arms out and just started flailing around in every direction, yelling. And then finally his hand touched a vending machine. And when he touched that vending machine, he was able to orient himself to know which direction to go to get to the door. But when he was sharing that story, it, it, I mean, he was in fear of his life at that point. Sure. As everyone else was, you could not see uh, one of the trustees who was familiar with the building could come and go as he pleased as long as he was back by a certain time was in the corridor a seven-foot-wide corridor only a few feet from the exit, he turned and went the wrong way. Right. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, what is now the Murray County Archives, then the Murray County Jail, where many of the people perished and where many of the people that you're talking about got confused about where they were, they're probably not more than 20 feet from a couple of exits. The smoke was so dense and so thick that even that short distance it may as well have been a mile away. They just could not see where they were. There were attempts to break into the walls of the building to get the smoke out and to get to more of the trapped people. The back section of the jail was called the workhouse, and that's where most of the jail cells were. There was, you had to go through, I think, two doors in order to get into that space. And so with the smoke that the way it was, they were trying to uh, break into find other ways to get into the building. Can 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 you speak to that? Yes, they, uh, the first thing they uh, tried to do was uh, call the uh, all the record services in town and get them to try to uh, take their booms and snatch the windows out. And uh, Mr. Haywood and Mr. Gray, they actually were breaking the booms off, their, off of their records trying to snatch those things down. I can remember them getting some of the concrete blocks out. I can't remember unless if a construction company was close. I'm not sure how they got those block, those uh, concrete blocks out. But at that time, then you could see the, the people lying on the floor. Either it looked like a, you could see the attempt for respirations or some of them actually had crawled over and stuck their heads down in the commode to tr- try to get away from the smoke at that time. But that was that was mainly what they did was was just try to get windows out, but of course they had no luck doing that. I know there are a couple of images that I've seen that actually show the wreckers as they're trying to pull those windows off. The front wheels are completely off the ground. They're they're really heroic efforts going on to try to try to get the smoke out and get to the people who are trapped inside. So let's talk a little bit about the controversy with the key. So we, we've already mentioned uh, that each cell door had its own key at this point in time with its corresponding number etched into it. So one key per door. Uh, how many sets of keys were available in the building that day? There were two. The first set was in the dispatch office, which is the one that we've already referred to. The second set we found out later was locked up inside the sheriff's office uh, which was locked because the sheriff was out of town. But in the panic, I doubt people would have even thought about that second set of keys. Sure. Because the only ones who would have known were the the people who worked there. Right. So Jailer Willie Cummins initially had the keys, uh, but criminal investigator Jerry Wayne Dickey took them from him uh, in, in an effort to sort of speed the process if he could. Uh, I think Mr. Cummins was actually knocked down in the blast when when they opened that door initially. Uh, Then you mentioned that the keys were dropped and likely kicked. 
Uh, and in the smoke, as we've described it many times now, uh, they're really difficult to find. So the firemen were apprised of that scenario, and their number one job is get people out and find those keys if possible, because that's the only way to get into uh, get into those jail cells. Um, one report mentioned that by unlocking just two doors, everyone would have been able to escape. But I think you debunked that in, in yes. your book. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. Well, there were people in different cells. Um, Buck Rowland was in an individual cell, an individual maximum security cell. We have the, the three females that were in the women's cell. We have... I think it was six or seven that were in the maximum security cell on another side of the building than any prisoners who were not taking part in the visitation process. So if there was no one there to visit that prisoner, they were in their own individual cell. Okay. Um, We mentioned earlier that 42 people would perish in this fire. How many others suffered injuries? And survived. Do we know the, that breakdown? Well, there were 75 that were taken to the hospital, and a number of those were released after treatment, but there were a number that had to stay, some one night, some two nights. One of the inmates that I actually interviewed told me that he woke up two days after the fact in Vanderbilt and remembered what had occurred, but was astonished when he looked at his body and he didn't have any bruises and he he didn't... He had no injuries. We're going to talk about some acts of heroism. Uh, but first, we need to take a little break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. History 
Mary's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Murray County Jail Fire of 1977, which is the worst jail fire tragedy in the state of Tennessee, the second worst in the nation. There were acts of heroism, of course, that day. As you mentioned, there were 95 people inside, 42 people perished, but it could have been much worse. You mentioned in your book, Cindy, that there was an inmate, a bank robber, a convicted bank robber who was trapped inside, and he went around to some of the other inmates who were trapped and wrapped their heads in wet towels, trying to help them be able to breathe through this this terrible scenario that they were in, uh, and was he able to, to make it out? What do we know about him? He did make it out, but he did not survive. But those that he assisted did. The ones that he had wrapped the wet towels around their head, so they, he, they he, did. He saved a number of lives there that day. Yes. And, and of course, the the EMTs and the firemen and the police that were all there uh, saved, saved many lives that day. Mr. Rich, you mentioned you, you got on the scene uh, and it was chaotic, lots of smoke everywhere. What was your role as the day progressed? Of course, starting out, I made the run back to the hospital with, uh, with Zimmer. And uh, I'd actually gone gone in the building to see if we could, you know, get another patient out. Of course, we couldn't get another patient out because they were all locked up. But uh, I did several things to uh, get us some more help started since there was no one at our office left to dispatch. Uh, and Miss Webb was trying to handle everything for the whole county at that time. Of course, the county dispatch couldn't use it because it's, that's where the fire was. I uh, made a... Uh, couple of calls. One was uh, to Miss Webb, and I told her to, on the radio, to uh, contact all the surrounding can- counties. Every county that touches Murray County needs to send us some units. And everybody sent us. Matter of fact, Marshall County sent two, and I think maybe Giles may have sent two also. And they they got here in, in a big hurry also, which, which was good. I also I knew she was so busy. I depended on my people in, out in what I call scanner land because there's a lot of people who listen to scanners. So I said on on my radio, if anyone is monitoring my traffic, please call this number. And I actually gave out a number I wasn't supposed to give out, which was the private number into the hospital ER. I said, call the ER and tell them we have a jail fire and we could be bringing as many as 100 patients into them. And then after that, it just became a, a, a wait and see to get the get the folks out. And then once we started getting them out, uh, transport and uh, take care of the ones on the scene. And then, like say, the ones who didn't make it, we had to uh, pronounce them, and uh, we put kind of set up a little bit of a temporary morgue with the body bags. So you're using the parking areas, the triage. Uh, Correct. Site. You have ambulances coming in from all over the place Correct. to be able to transport them out. What was Murray Regional like in 1977? Murray Regional had just moved into the ER where it is now. And the part next to it was, uh, wasn't even finished yet. Uh, it was not any. It didn't look. It didn't look like anything then, like it looks like now, as far as spread out all over the place. 
they had several nurses there, but I believe at that time they still didn't have doctors on duty. Uh, even they they just called them in by their specialty if they need them. But we uh, the nurses they were prepared when uh, when I got there. They they were already met us outside and were ready to uh, start taking care of the patients. Of course, they called all their folks in. I also. <clears throat> Asked Miss Webb when she got a minute to uh, call out Oak Park Pool, where everybody went on on a Sunday afternoon, and announced that if any emergency workers were there, they needed to head either to their headquarters or to the Murray County Jail. And like I think I mentioned in a book, two of our guys showed up in their swimming trunks and helped us out. <laughs> Um, well, uh, to me, this is one of the most amazing parts of the story is uh, I think you mentioned, Cindy, in the book that the emergency room service had been open, I think, 22 days prior to this. This is their initiation. And as you said, Mr. Rich, no ER docs yet. So it's manned mostly by nurses. They would call in doctors as they needed them. This is their initiation. They have multiple trauma coming in. I, I think th this is one of those things that always appeals to me when I read a book. Off-duty hospital staff were called in with a code, a yellow pearl has been found. What, what did that mean? That meant everyone had to come in immediately. The, this no is a trauma of the highest order that yes. everybody had to come, yes. come into work. They give a condition on that, too, also, Cindy. They'll say a yellow pearl has been found in uh, one, two, or three, whatever it is, and then you know. It's a breakdown, like five patients, five to 15. And in this case, it was, a, like she said, the highest number, whatever they use Yellow Pearl for. Right. So more heroics there. The nurses that were manning the ER and all of the emergency staff uh, were immediately inundated with with some very serious injuries. Uh, yes. But they couldn't handle them all. Uh, Mr. Rich, you had mentioned off-air that they had called, and this is before life flight, of course, they were having to transport some of the victims uh, to other facilities. How did they do it? Someone made the call for uh, the National Guard w was drilling that day, thank goodness, and came down and, and helped with the traffic control. And I'm not too sure that maybe one of their officers didn't reach Fort Campbell, and they sent the, the big helicopters down who could, I believe transport multiple patients at the time, and they landed right in beside Murray Regional. So all we had to do was just uh, take the patient over there to them. It, matter of fact, it was they landed right where the first uh, life flight pad was there at the hospital. Many news accounts gave confused and misleading reports. I'd like to address a few of these. There were people in the community that reported seeing men on rooftops with sniper sniper rifles. Uh, there were also there was a, an armed military presence on the scene as well. Uh, some have even made accusations that this fire was a cover up for something more nefarious. Have you uncovered, Cindy, anything in your research that would confirm or debunk this these conspiracy theories? Yes, I, I have. It was really interesting to me because naturally I had heard all those conspiracy theories, and for eight years after the fire occurred, there were lawsuits. That went on. And anyone who was a party or involved in any way had been cautioned not to talk about any of it until the lawsuits were settled. And that was for their own protection. I understand that from a legal aspect. But that just allowed eight years for these conspiracy theories to just go full blown. Uh, I have heard uh, one particular gentleman who worked for the sheriff's department was accused of murdering 
two different people by two different groups and then setting the fire to cover it up. However, if you just think logistically, visiting hour was just that. It was one hour, one time a week from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. This fire broke out five minutes before that visiting hour was over. Anyone with common sense who wanted to commit a nefarious act would certainly not do so five minutes before all these people, potential witnesses, are going to be leaving. They would wait until afterwards. And then another factor, the two individuals that the rumors had said were killed by this sheriff's department employee were both taken care of at Oaks and Nichols. Tony Sal was one of the people I interviewed, and I asked him, were there any injuries? And he said, absolutely not. The only injury he saw was a small goose egg on the forehead of Buck Rowland. And then also the nurses that I interviewed both said there were no injuries other than Zinmer, who had burns. But no other parties that were brought in had any injuries whatsoever. The armed presence there, of course, goes back to the jailbreak that had happened a few days before. Yes. I, I think one of the officers who was seen with uh, a rifle on a rooftop had reacted thinking, not knowing that it was a fire. He thought it was another jailbreak attempt. So that's why he showed up. But yes. the National Guard showed up as well. And they were there mainly for traffic control. Is, is traffic right? control and just to, to control the environment because nobody really knew exactly what was going on. And, and you had all these rumors out in the street already. But yes, I think the confusion came in just like with what Freddie Richards said. He thought the dispatch said there was a jailbreak. So others thought that same thing and they showed up with that in mind because there had been a jailbreak break just a few days before, and two of the people who had escaped were back in the jail, and they were talking about breaking out again. The fire started at 1.55. By about 3.30, everybody was out of the building, and it was over. So in roughly an hour and a half, this tragedy occurred and ended. Uh, and, of course, it would have a huge impact on the community. We're still talking about it today after all of these years. And, again, everybody who lived in Columbia through that tragedy remembers the details about it in terms of where they were. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and about its effect on uh, some of the staff, the EMT staff and police staff, uh, when we come back right after these messages. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I'm a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. 
My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, memsmodernlandscape.com. That's memsmodernlandscape.com. And check out what we have to offer. Thanks. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back. Today we're talking about the 1977 Murray County Jail Fire. Chief Deputy Farmer, uh, when you interviewed him, Cindy, wrote this, uh, or said this. The jail fire was an unimaginable situation that left me and many others dealing with PTSD. I recall that it really hit hard about one year later. Within the next few years, I moved away from Murray County and eventually from Tennessee. One of the primary reasons was the way members of the community looked at me and classified me in a negative way, as if I were responsible for the deaths that day. They looked at us all that way. Mr. Rich, did you have that same experience? Uh, Yes. uh, At that time, being young and being in emergency work like I was, I didn't think at the time that it affected me that much. But nowadays, when I look at the book and other things that brought it back to me to realize that, yes, I, I was affected. The odd thing about the whole situation was working hard that day, and we were up all night, of course, taking care of uh, different aspects of it, like working the morgue or whatever, did not hit me really hard till I went down to return some equipment down to Oaks and Nichols Field Home. And, and when I looked in and saw families in caskets, the whole family in a casket, that, that's when it really struck me. Hey, some, some folks here have lost their whole family just about involved in this. And that's, I think that's when, the, when it really hit me hard. Was the boy who started the fire ever charged with the cause of the deaths of 42 people. He was. He was charged first in juvenile court, and then eventually he was taken into adult court. I believe in juvenile court he had been tried with manslaughter and was not convicted of that. But in adult court, they had to try him with something different, and he was tried there for second-degree murder. And the second-degree murder involves intent, Mr. Zimner didn't know anyone inside that building, so there there was no way they could prove intent. He was just he was he was a mentally challenged young man, and he was just trying to get out of that cell. That's that was his intent, but he did eventually plead guilty, I believe, of manslaughter, and he was given eighteen months and probation, which was the time served. How had this tragedy, you mentioned, Mr. Rich, that 
families. These these weren't because it was visiting day. It wasn't necessarily an individual in a family who passed away, but family members passed away. Can can you speak to who who some of those families were? The Goldens for sure, and the Rollins. I'm not sure, Cindy, if there was any other. Well, the un- only other families were the Bellinfonts, Mr. Bellinfont and his son, who was in Max- maximum security. And Mr. Bellinfont was actually the only visitor who was actually locked in that day. And the reason was there was a process for these inmates who had visitors. They would be five minutes before that visitation period would start, the jailer or the deputy would go and bring those visitors into that visitation area. Because Mr. Bellinfont was late, his son was still in the maximum security area. So the only way he could visit him, he was locked in into a little hallway just outside that maximum security cell. So he was the only one, the only visitor who was locked in. But getting back to family members, our sheriff, Buck Rowland, that day lost his father, who was incarcerated, his mother, who was there to visit, his grandmother, and two uncles. And it's really a compelling story when you look at it, because he was at home at the age of two years old with his aunt, who eventually raised him. But his aunt was a stay-at-home mom. I understand she had three children of her own. But her sister, who was married to Buck Rowland and perished that day, also had three children. Her husband was one of the uncles. So our sheriff's aunt, who virtually was his mother, who raised him from the age of two, went from being a stay-at-home mom with a husband and three children to that day having six children and no husband. Hmm. Unbelievable. It is. There was a, a formal investigation of the fire. Uh, what what do we what were some of the outcomes of that? So the, the show is called History Hook. I always like to connect our local history to the national history, and I think this is an important part of this story. This was not the first jail fire that year, if I remember uh, from a talk that you did. Where there was another terrible jail, jail fire, maybe in Vermont. Does that sound? That sounds correct. Sounds yes. right to you. Another terrible, tra- tragic fire, jail fire tragedy. So they did an investigation. Uh, uh, you mentioned the, a report was compiled in March of 2010 by the NFPA Fire Analysis and Research Division titled Prisons and Jails. It state, stated that since 1980, structure fires in prisons and jails have fallen 86%. Much of that reduction may very well be attributed to the fire safety code changes that resulted from the Murray County Jail Fire. They started changing the way they built jails, that even in a concrete and steel building, things like the padding used in padded cells and in mattresses were a problem. So what are some of the changes that came as a result of this terrible tragedy? Maybe some good came out of this terrible tragedy. Absolutely. Well, now you have the automatic locking, you have the fire extinguishers, the the sprinkler systems, you have one key per, for all doors. You don't have the kind of scenario they have then. You also have an area for prisoners to be able to escape the building and, and be still within a secured place, a fenced-in area, which they didn't have there at the time. But the biggest thing that came out of this was understanding the potency and those gases 
within the padded cells and the mattresses. And it was interesting to me, uh, Jim Swindle, in 1999, uh, he was one of the first firefighters there at the scene. But also in 1999, he was the fire investigator. He went to inspect the new jail when it was built. And he told me that one of the first things he did was walk in, pick up a mattress, and read the tag. And he told them, get every single one of these mattresses out of here. We're not opening the door until we have appropriate fire retardant mattresses in this facility. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the investigative report mentioned that the padded room was made of polyurethane foam, which when heated, as in a fire of this type, gave off some 1,200 different types of gas, including cyanide. Yes. So I find that it's often in tragedies like this where the most change comes about. So uh, as they were moving into the new jail facility, they weren't just thinking about security and keeping prisoners in. They also had to have an eye towards getting people out if they needed to. That's a, a direct result. That kind of thinking is a direct result of of the jail fire. Um, what else do we need to know about the jail fire? What, is, what does it mean to us today? How do we how do we wrap our minds around this and move forward from a tragedy like this? I think it's important to be respectful, to honor the, not only the people who were lost but their family and friends who were left behind. Because this this did not end the day after the funerals were all over. Obviously it didn't because we're still talking about it today. There were a lot of people that worked hard to try to save lives. And some of those people ended up suffering later. Junior Gray is an example. Many of our community know him, but they what they may not know is that years later, he died of brain cancer, most likely a result of being there that day. There have been many, many people who have contracted some forms of cancer from those fumes and from being there trying to help, trying to save lives. And that's something that Every one of those men who were in that facility crawling around on their hands and knees, unable to see some of the one of the deputies that was in there trying to help had firefighters holding on to his leg as they would move from one cell to another because it was so dense. It, and it, the firefighters that were impacted by that still, as Freddie Rich said, as he does, they suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder still today. That, that's nothing that you just get over. Right. And Barry had mentioned to me uh, off air how he appreciated how you wrote the book. The, the, the angle that you took with this is one that was sort of trying to see the positive side of this terrible tragedy and not from a place of blame. Uh, as is often the case, and as was the case, if you read the newspapers, and this was national news, this was all over the country, and there were people writing some very negative things in the newspapers uh, that so many people uh, didn't didn't make it out. Uh, and, and as I said, a lot of the a lot of the workers there that day, a lot of the police and EMS had a really hard time. They took a, the brunt of the blame for a lot of this. And, and as you've discovered in your writing, it didn't need to happen. Uh, it didn't need to happen at all. Uh, so we appreciate your effort with this. 
one of the things that you talked about or came to me with the idea is there should be a historic marker. Uh, in front of what is now the Murray County Archives to talk about this tragedy. And I think I was a little reticent, you'll remember at first, thinking, you know, there are going to be elements in the community who see this as, you know, these people were incarcerated, and they were incarcerated for a reason. They hurt other people. Does there need to be a memorial to to those folks? And uh, I'd mentioned, you know, that's a a thing that people are going to say. What, What do you say to that? Well, there was only one person inside that facility who could have potentially received the death penalty. There were many people who were incarcerated. There were some DUIs in there. There was one gentleman who was incarcerated because he was caught driving without his prescription lenses. I mean, these were not hardened criminals. These were family members. And the visitors that were there, they, they were innocent victims. There were some who were just days away from release. Yes, and Tom, I, and Cindy, I think you did a marvelous job with this book. Thank you. I hope people will read this book. It will take them back. But anybody that reads this book and reads what happened with the Golden family cannot help but just, it's heartbreaking. Yes. Right. Yes. Cindy, where can we find your book? You can find them. Autographed copies are at Columbia Health Food Store. It's available online at Amazon.com. It's also available at the Mule Town Books Very on good. the square. It's called Tragedy in Small Town, Tennessee, the Murray County Jail Fire. Uh, I leave you this quote uh, from John F. Kennedy. The courage of life is often a less dramatic spectacle than the courage of a final moment, but it is no less a magnificent mixture of triumph and tragedy. I'd like to thank our guests today, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, uh, Mr. Fred Rich, and Cindy Tinsley for uh, their input on, uh, I think, one of the most significant events in Murray County history, had national implications. And as always, would like to thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. This is Coach Jadiris Goff from Columbia Central Football, and you are listening to the home of the Columbia Central Lions 1340 and 103.7 WKRM. Farmer Johnny here, Taylor Family Farm. I want to give you all a little look-see. We raise 100% non-GMO, grass-fed beef, pasture chicken, and pork on our family farm. Everything that we grow is raised with love and care to ensure the highest quality and nutrition for our family and customers. You can shop online at taylorfamilyfarmtn.com or visit our farm store in person at Etheridge, Tennessee at 301 Dave Reisner Road. That's taylorfamilyfarmtn.com for more information. Hello, it's me, Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. July reminds me of red, white, and blue. If you were born in July, your birthstone is the ruby, king of the precious stones, for its rarity, hardness, second only to diamonds. We have a beautiful collection from earrings to rings, modern and antique. If you were born in July, we'll take 10% off your purchase. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Yes, 
want to say that your show is disgusting. Two white men and a white woman attacking a black man who's a Democrat. You act like a bunch of Southern disgusting human beings. You need to get off the Dude number one, Mr. Jim York. Hey, Del, you made a comment and called me a jackass yesterday. Well, it, it, there was a uh, that was a friendly comment. Uh, that, okay, uh, but but that go ahead and, and seal my faith as being a Democrat. You know, we got a jackass as a symbol, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm a true Democrat, buddy. So okay. it wasn't a put down from my perspective. It was a peg up. So that's, thanks a lot. That's the way to go. <laughs> Just own it. Yes, sir. Three dudes with a view. Triggering liberals between Dollywood and Graceland Monday through Thursday from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM. This is Jack Cobb with Murray County Public Schools and the Big Yellow School Bus radio show and podcast. Join Coach Mike Lyle and me as we talk about the great things happening at Murray County Public Schools, both on location and in the studio. Find the podcast on TheBigYellowSchoolBus.com or listen to the radio show each Saturday morning at 10 a.m. on 101.7 FM Front Porch Radio in Columbia, Tennessee. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.